You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So, <clears throat> question 82. After looking at all Ten Commandments, they ask this question, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? After all, this is our duty, to obey the revealed will of God. And the answer is, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. So there's the conclusion to our study of the Ten Commandments. If you felt convicted as we went through them, that's probably a normal thing because none of us can keep them. We are obliged to render personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. So this is the way the divines describe the duty of man. Personally, it's not just a corporate entity. It's each one of us individually. Perfectly... The least commandment, the least breach of the commandments is worthy of <clears throat> the penalty of death. And perpetually, we're, there's never a time when we're relieved of this obligation. So personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience is our obligation from a nature that is holy and righteous. Man is to yield constant, uninterrupted obedience to God. And that's what Adam should have done. And that's what he could have done, but it is not what he did. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So those Ten Commandments are summarized in the two great commandments that Jesus outlines right there. Before the fall, man was able to keep the commandments of God perfectly without flaw. He had the ability. And as we'll see, the law of God was written on his heart. So in addition to the special command not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the moral law was given to mankind as the rule of his obedience, the Ten Commandments that we went over. He could have kept it. He had the ability. The law of God was written on his heart. He had power to fulfill it because he was made in God's image. Since the fall, no mere man, and of course the divines put their mere man because Jesus was not a mere man. He was more than a man. He was God-man. But since the fall, no mere man has been able to keep the law, though some claim to have done so, which is striking to me because the Bible seems to suggest from beginning to end that we can't do it. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, should be sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So there sums up this whole idea that mankind in general, and every individual in particular, cannot keep the law of God. Everyone proceeding from Adam by ordinary generation is included in this. None is righteous. Now, of course, only Jesus Christ is exempt because he was generated extraordinarily or miraculously. And this gets down to the absolute necessity of the virgin birth. J. Gresham Machen wrote, I think it was his dissertation. Wasn't it a dissertation on the, the necessity of the virgin birth? I have the book. You have the book, yeah. 
I do too. I just don't remember if he... I know he wrote it. I can't remember if it was a dissertation or not. But his point was, is that this is one of the things that the liberals were denying, the virgin birth of Christ. Are you crazy? How can that happen? Well, it did happen. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and she, w- she conceived miraculously the Son of God. And so he was brought into this life in a miraculous way, not by a human father, so that sin, the original sin, was not passed down to Jesus. Now you're saying, well, didn't he come from Mary, a sinner? Yes, she was a sinner. But even though the leper touched Christ, which in every other instance would have defiled him, in that instance, because he is the Son of God, he cleansed the leper. So he can bring a clean thing out of an unclean. None of us can, but God can. So he did. He brought a clean thing out of the unclean Mary, but he came by a miraculous birth, which is absolutely necessary for our salvation. If there's no virgin birth, there is no salvation. Any questions on this introductory stuff? Okay? Everyone comes into this world with a sinful heart and a depraved nature. Every single one of us from the beginning, from conception. And from this original sin, and that's what we call original sin, it's passed down from Adam to the rest of his posterity. From this original sin proceeds all actual transgressions that are committed. So every sin that we commit in life originates from the heart. Isn't that what Jesus said? Out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, murders, thefts, and so forth. And it's a corrupt heart. So by nature, every one of us is indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to anything that is spiritually good. That's how we come into this world. That's how every unbeliever exists in this world. And unless grace intervenes, that's how we will die and depart from this world. Indisposed, you have no disposition to obey the will of God. Disabled, you have no ability to love or seek God. And made opposite, you love what's evil. Why do we sin? It's so irrational. You ask yourself, why did I do that? Well, because you love it. (laughs) There's no other reason. It's irrational. Sin is irrational. There's no explanation for it. So we're made opposite to the good. That's how man comes into this world. At the same time, he is prone to rebel, to murmur, and to do the devil's will. That is our disposition by nature. So again, we've talked about, you know, vipers and diapers and all that stuff. Babies are little sinners. We're training them. We pray for them. We're asking God to convert them. But they are little bundles of sin. And we find that out right away uh, when they learn the word no, right? <laughs> we, were down, we were on vacation at the pool, and my wife witnessed this little boy was sitting on a towel, and the father was over there, and the father said, now, don't you go into that pool. Don't go into that pool. The boy looked at the dad, <laughs> went right into the pool. <laughs> little viper in a diaper. I recently saw a billboard with Dolly Parton that said this, find the good in everybody, kindness, pass it on. I don't know if you've seen those billboards. They're in the South. It would be more accurate to have a billboard saying, you will find no good in anybody, pass that on. (laughs) You know. 
Modern man believes that there is at least some good in everyone. He is offended by the truth of total depravity. So we don't want to offend people unnecessarily, but we cannot refrain from teaching what Scripture reveals. This is who we are by nature. Uh, was it Vody Bauckham who typically says, I didn't write the mail, I just deliver it? I think somebody yesterday said that. <clears throat> That's what it says. In our day, people are optimistic about man. Humanists, they think all we need to be good is education and training, just throw some more money at it. But the Bible is realistic and it is very pessimistic regarding man's nature and his ability to do anything that is good. So as we've gone through the commandments, we've seen the importance of the preface. Remember how the preface goes. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It begins with grace. The only way that anybody can keep the law of God is by God's grace. And you can't keep it perfectly. Sue? Objectively, they're good. Subjectively, they're not, unless the child has faith in Christ. So what we're doing as parents, we're training their behavior. You can, tr you can train the behavior of a child, but only God can change the heart. So remember we talked about you know, the guy who helps the lady across the street. If he's an unbeliever, it's sin. It doesn't proceed from faith. If you're a believer, it's good. Yeah, you're right, you're right. You can also have if he's an unbeliever, but she's a believer. Sure. Yeah, God will use everything for good for his own children. So Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But it's still evil. Right. It's evil for them, you know. But yeah, God can use anything for good, and he does, Jim. Yeah, you're proud of your humility, right? Oh, how humble I am, what a great... Everything we do, every sermon I preach is tainted with sin. So nothing we can do, even our best works, are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. But they're acceptable to God because through the mediation of Christ, He makes them acceptable. But see, the unbeliever has no mediator. And there's no faith. So everything He does, even the plowing of the wicked, is sin. That's what's sad. Um, but here we have this idea of training children. So what we're doing as parents, covenant children, we're, we're told to train them, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, use the rod, you know, you spare the rod, you destroy the child. We train their behavior and pray fervently that God would change their hearts. And we expose them to the gospel offer every week. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So there's the assessment of Scripture, totally contrary to modern man's thinking. 
The natural moral condition of man is evil because, as Jeremiah puts it, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. One commentator says, terminally ill. I would say dead. (laughs) It's not just dying, it's dead. Only one who was born of woman and lived among men was in possession of personal goodness. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. That's separation. Christ is unique, and he is now exalted above the heavens. That's our high priest. Thank God for him. Any questions on anything on this slide? Okay. There are those, even in our day, who believe in perfectionism. Um, They say that it's possible for a person to become free of sin in this life. Now, of course, what they're saying is a Christian person. This is their teaching. They would not say that about an unbeliever, of course, but they're talking about Christians. Now, beliefs do vary widely, but all of them in perfectionistic uh, tendencies claim that our Lord taught its possibility. So it's possible for a person to attain such a level of sanctification that he or she is perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a misinterpretation of what Jesus says there in Matthew 5. And their rationale is simply this. If God requires it, we must be able to do it. That's their rationale. But obligation does not necessitate ability. If If you're driving drunk, you're not able to drive properly, right? You're drunk. Does that negate your obligation to obey the law? No. Even though you're incapable of obeying the law when you're drunk, you're still obligated to obey it. Same is true here. Even though the sinner, because of his own sin, is no longer able to obey the law, he is obligated to obey it. So just because the Bible says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect does not mean necessarily that we can do it. And obviously elsewhere in Scripture, all over the the place, it says that we can't. Gretchen? No, I think, I think you're, one of the blessings of salvation is that you're freed from the dominion of sin. So no longer are you a slave to sin. <clears throat> I don't know what they're saying, but I do know that what the Bible teaches is that even though we're freed from the dominion of sin, there are still the remnants of sin within us that wage war against the Spirit. So there is going to be a war for the rest of our days on this earth. Yeah. But you're not going to just have one sin that 
Well, if he did, let's say somebody struggles with alcoholism and they're converted and they no longer touch alcohol, that's great. And God's grace can do that, yeah. That, that's not wrong. But we will struggle with sin in whatever way it expresses itself. And a lot of times, in most, if not all of us, there are besetting sins, things to which we are prone more than others. So like you might struggle with, you know, robbing banks. Well, that's not a temptation for me. I'm not going to rob banks, but I have other temptations, right? So yeah, we need to recognize that even after the forgiveness of our sins and conversion, we're going to struggle every day. And what's interesting to me, and some of you more seasoned Christians can tell me if this is right with you, that the older I get, the more clearly I see the heinousness of my sin. And so Paul, you know, he says he's the chief of sinners near the end of his life. Well, here's the apostle Paul. But I think it's, it's clear, it becomes clear in your mind, oh, God, this is awful. And I don't think that means you've, been, you've regressed. It simply means that you're seeing it more clearly. You know, there's more light. Mary Alice? Amen. And that's, that's right. That's a dual benefit. That at the same time that you see the gravity of your sin, you see the glory of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, that's true. Thank you for that. The doctrine of perfectionism is held by Wesleyans or Methodists, Quakers or what we call friends, Nazarenes. <clears throat> John Wesley taught that Christians could attain a degree of perfection in this life or what he called entire sanctification. Now, he said it's rare, but he said it's possible. And we would disagree wholeheartedly with him. George Fox, one of the Quaker originals, founder, highlighted the need of the inner light of Christ for a life surrendered to God. So if God can give you enough inner light, you can overcome and attain entire sanctification. The Nazarenes believe the entire sanctification is an act of God by which a believer is freed from original sin. Now, this is destructive, because what does that do in the church? Okay, Rob has attained to entire sanctification. I haven't. I'm second class. Way to go, Rob. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> but Scripture teaches not only man's inability to keep God's commands, but his daily breach every day. Every breath. In his original state of innocence, Adam was capable of keeping the law perfectly. He was made upright. He was in God's image, knowledge, righteousness, holiness was stamped upon his soul. And that's how God made him. That's how he came from the hand of his maker. The law of God was written on his heart. He was endowed with sufficient power to fulfill it. He could have done it. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, righteous, holy. That's how God made him. That they have sought out many schemes. This whole idea of free will. Uh, and again, it was a free choice. There is free will. But there's God's sovereignty too. And somehow he's able to harmonize these. I can't, but he does. Any questions on that slide? Jonathan? Yeah, 
Gaius than when he first met them. Uh, because they're always asking, well, what sin do you still struggle with? Why don't you just stop it? <laughs> but then you talk to them and you realize they actually have a lower view of the law of God. Because the only way to rationalize that, to think that you've attained sinfulness, is if you have just an outward view of the law. Right. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. And I think, you know, this was the Pharisee's error. And the confession is very clear in saying that the law is not just perfect, but it's spiritual. So it reaches the understanding and the will and the affections and all the other powers of the soul. Your dreams. You're responsible for your dreams. You say, well, how can that be? Well, where do your dreams originate? From which? From your heart. Your dreams come from your heart. And it shows the nature of your heart. Now, you can say, well, God gave dreams in the Old Testament. Well, that's God. And I don't think he does that now. But anyway, it just shows that the law is spiritual. You're right. Melissa? Yeah. Right, yeah, Arminianism. And the whole idea that there's some spark of good so that I can choose Christ, which means I can lose Christ, which is sad. There's no comfort in that. So that's what we say. I, the Arminians, I would call a sincere Arminian my brother. I would not let him be my teacher. They ought not to be in the pulpit until they figure this out, right? The new birth, Don? Well, that's true. I mean, he, he can do whatever he wants. There's no, no limitation on God other than he can't lie. He can. But I'm not sure. He can change the heart. Yeah, and he can enable us to obey sincerely. But in his wisdom, he's made it so that we go through this life in a process of sanctification, and we can't keep it perfectly, yeah. So, Mary Alice? We've talked a lot about Well, yeah, I think typically when in our, in our language, when we use the word heart in these discussions, we understand it's the very core of your being. When scripture uses that word heart, I think originally it was the bowels. That's what the language is. So the Hebrews, they're not thinking that your bowels do anything for, but, but the very heart of who you are. So that's what we're getting at. So the very core of your being as a sinner is just wicked. The very core of your being as a believer has been changed, renewed. So there's something good in you, the Holy Spirit. But you're still struggling because there are those remnants, those lusts of the flesh that wage war against the Spirit. So I think that, if that answers your question. That's the heart is the core of your being, spiritually. Dan? Full circle 
perfectionism, which teaches that you can never be free from sin because you're addicted. Right. And the church is blind to this too. Right. Uh, in the sense that we now pick more accept people cannot get liberty and have the victory over certain sin. <clears throat> I yeah. understand we're addicted to sin in our natural state. But once you enter into the kingdom of Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, it is indeed possible to have liberty and get the victory over certain sins. Yeah, <clears throat> no, I, I don't like the the label of addiction to certain sins myself. Um, I remember, was it, who's the golfer? <laughs> Who's the famous golfer? Tiger Woods, when he had those issues 10 years ago, and I think he said something like, I'm addicted to sex. Okay, that's not an addiction, my friend. That's a sin. But what we've done is take away the morality of these things and assign them to something beyond our ability. And it kind of makes it so much more palatable to modern man. Well, we just got to help you. We just got to help you get over this addiction to sex. You know, no, you need to repent and believe in the gospel, and God will help you to mortify that sin. I don't like the language of victory over sin either, because a lot of times you might gain some ability in resisting that sin, but it will raise its ugly head. And I think it's going to be this idea that all my life I'm going to struggle with that and I'm going to work hard and fight against it under God's blessing by the Spirit's power. But I, the victory was at the cross and we're growing more like Christ each and every day. Okay, so as Solomon observed, fallen mankind has sought out many schemes. We invent new ways in which to walk. We refuse to look to the ancient paths, which is the good way. We are in search of false gods, and we've forsaken the true and living God. As it says in Jeremiah 2, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So it's both. You've given up the good, and you've pursued the bad. That's mankind. So not only is Adam's guilt imputed to us, we're guilty at birth, but original sin is conveyed by natural generation. We lack original righteousness. We don't have the propensity to do what's right. And we are utterly depraved. We're filled with the propensity to do what is evil. So you ask yourself, why did I do that? Well, because of this. That's who I am by nature. The human nature is vitiated of everything that is good and wholly inclined to all evil. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man is great in the earth. This is before the flood. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Getting back to Jonathan's point. The thoughts, the intentions of the heart. What's interesting is that even a worldwide flood couldn't destroy the wickedness of man. So that's why I have Genesis 8.21 there. Right after the flood, same thing. The wickedness of man. Rob? Because the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. It grieved him. He put more restraints because of the length of lives then that he 
allowed them to live 800, 900 years. Now it's three score and seven, three score and 10, 70, 80, 90. And he has put restraints by common grace. He's put restraints on sin. If he didn't, this would be hell. It's not hell on earth. There is no such thing as hell on earth right now. People who say that have no idea what they're talking about. Because hell is very, very different than what life on earth is like. But the flood did not destroy the wickedness of man. So every intention, every one of them, of his thoughts in his heart was only evil, no good, continually. That's the state of man. That's utter depravity. Our corruption is likened to a plague, a defilement, and a deadly poison by the Apostle James. Our propensity to sin is manifested the moment we appear on earth and draw our first breath. The wicked are estranged from the womb, as we said before. Our propensity to sin is not equal in all, but it is present in all, and unbelievers go from bad to worse. Just as believers are sanctified going from good to better, unbelievers go from bad to worse. We're we're never static. Human condition is never static. There's always movement. Um, So as a believer, you know, I think it's Psalm 84, they go from day to day or dawn to dawn, something like that. We're increasing. There's this progression in sanctification. And it's the same with a wicked person. They get worse. And you know that by yourself. If you've committed a sin, the next time it becomes a little bit easier. Your conscience is a little more seared, a little more toughened against that type of thing. Until after a while, you're not just walking with sinners. You're not just sitting in the seat of scoffers. You're standing in the way of sinners. You're sitting in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 1. There's that progression. Oh, any thoughts? Any questions on... Anything here? We do have a last slide. Hopefully it's encouraging. Rob? No, no, go. Is that what you were going to ask? Yeah. Thoughts? Our wickedness is vast and deep. Every intention of the thoughts are evil. Our thoughts are sinful when taken up with vain and or sinful things. The least vain thought diverted away from God and our duty brings guilt. Isn't this amazing that Jesus never sinned? He never had an errant thought, ever. That, that's incredible to me. What would life be like without sin? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? That's what he was looking at when they were thinking. God knows and judges the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. He weighs our motives. He knows the secrets of the heart. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men in Christ Jesus... I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. So right there, he's implying that we will be judged on the basis in part of our thoughts. Our thoughts and intentions are the source from which flow our sinful words and deeds. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Was it Flip Wilson? Those of you who are old enough to remember that, Flip Wilson used to say, well, the devil made me do it. Well, he does do things, but a lot of it comes from our own hearts. The mind and heart comprise the root, and the words and deeds make up the fruit. If the nature of the tree is good, it'll bring forth good fruit. If it is bad, it'll produce bad fruit, unless the mind and heart are transformed 
by the work of the Holy Spirit, your speech and conduct will never be reformed. Any questions on thoughts, Rob? Yeah. So this rich young ruler came up and he didn't have a good understanding of goodness or evil. He didn't understand what good really was. He was just kind of using it as an address for a teacher. And he didn't understand the depth of his own depravity. So Jesus is basically saying, why do you call me good? You don't recognize me. Only one is good. God. I'm God. And you don't recognize the depravity of your heart. You think you've kept all these commandments all your life. Okay, go sell everything. You're covetous. Yeah. Sue? It's the hardest battleground we have to fight. Our deeds, our deeds or words are tough, but it's the thought life that's the hardest. That's hard. And you've got to watch your eyes, you've got to watch your ears, you've got to watch what you see, what you watch, what you hear, everything. It's, it's, a, it's a battle. We're in a war. Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God. We're in a war. And living in Hudson, in prosperity and peace, it's difficult to envision that. But we are in a war. We're soldiers. And that's one of the reasons we get together every week, to remind ourselves that we are soldiers fighting a battle. And it's not easy. Very difficult. Words... These are the audible expressions of what fills the heart, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus referred to man's accountability for his speech at the final day. Sobering, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Every careless word. How many careless words do I speak on a daily basis? But... Those words that we say up front on that stage when we join the church, those will justify us. Because you trust in Christ, and his blood, as we'll find out, cleanses you from all sin. Thank God for that. There is no sin so small, but that it displeases a holy God and brings with it a measure of guilt. Our words are likened to sword thrusts, arrows, and a serpent's tongue. By his words, a man can destroy another, and by his words, he can bring healing to the soul. What's that saying we learned as children? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. It is a lie. How many of us still remember words that cut to the heart when we were kids? Your, your sibling, your parents, your friend, they said something, it still sticks with you. It'll never leave you. It hurt. And it can destroy. So don't think that words can't hurt you. The Apostle James refers to the sinful human tongue as a restless evil full of deadly poison. So unruly is the tongue that we daily, we sin in our speech. It's like a snake's venom. And no snake bite or bee sting can do as much evil in the world as the evil speaking of sinful humans. Thomas Manton says, a wicked tongue is venomous and hurtful. It kills three at once. Him that is slandered, his fame by an ill report. Him to whom it is told, his belief with a lie. 
and himself with the sin of detraction or defamation. So three people, the one you're slandering, the one you're telling, and yourself. You kill all three at once. Those are words. Deeds, we break them on a daily basis. Sins conceived in thought, uttered by the tongue, are done in the body. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. There are more than the hairs of my head. Our deeds, even our best works, are imperfect and defiled. Sins of commission, sins of omission, sins in the day, sins at night, sins during the week and in church, sins on the street, at work and in school, sin, sin, sin. The only hope is Christ. Our lives are full of sins everywhere, every way. All thoughts, words, deeds are tainted with sin. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, your worship is a righteous deed. It's tainted with sin. It's like a polluted garment. Think of that. Your best work. And you think to yourself, wow, I'm in church. We're worshiping the Lord, which is a good thing. We're supposed to do that. But because of sin, it's a polluted garment. And the only reason that God accepts it is because he sees it through his son, which is why we always worship and pray in Jesus' name. Not in the Father's name, not in the Spirit's name, not in any other name, in Jesus' name. It'd be difficult, if not impossible, to see ourselves the way God sees us and maintain our sanity. I think this is one of the reasons why it takes maturity in the Lord to see your sin more clearly. If I saw the way I really was when I was first converted, <laughs> I probably wouldn't keep going. Every one of our deeds leaves its mark. And hereafter, our lives will be judged by these marks. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Every person will receive an appropriate reward or punishment for the actions of his or her life. And from what we've seen this morning, does anybody deserve a reward? No one. But in Christ, God loves to reward his grace, which is an amazing thing. Each one will receive what he ought to receive, given all the circumstances, according to impartial justice. Uh, it shouldn't be deeds. That should be grace. Sorry, Rob. <laughs> the title should be grace. Man's inability to keep God's commands shows the need for grace. Grace, by its very nature, is undeserved by those to whom it is given. You and I do not deserve it. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So the idea of grace is for those who are undeserving. It's just because of who God is. He blesses us. No one has a right to God's grace. He bestows it freely, which is a wonderful thing. He is sovereign in bestowing his grace. He gives us as he pleases and to whom he pleases. He's absolutely sovereign. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Nobody does. He's pleased, according to his sovereign good pleasure, to extend mercy and to bestow grace to those who sincerely ask him for it. And even the asking is prompted by his Holy Spirit. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it'll be opened to you. So we are wholly indebted to the free grace of God for eternal salvation and everlasting life. It's just free. 
You didn't do anything to get it, and you can't do anything to lose it. And that's comforting. When we struggle with sin and we repent and ask for forgiveness, we have to recognize that you cannot lose it. We may rely on nothing within ourselves or done by ourselves. There's nothing good within us. We're nothing but unprofitable servants, utterly incapable of keeping God's commandments. Thank God he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Rob? No. Good question. That's a good question. Matthew 25, at the final judgment, it's talking about those servants that the king says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a little thing, you'll be faithful in much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the idea is that there's the evidence. They clothed the naked, they visited the incarcerated, they fed the hungry, and so forth. There's the evidence of grace in their lives. And so God is pleased to reward his own grace. You're a wretch, but he gave you a new heart. And so he'll say, well done, you. And you're saying to yourself, Lord, when, when did I do anything for you? Well, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers. Yeah. So he's not talking, Jesus is not talking to Jesus there. King Jesus is talking to his children. Yeah. Which is an amazing thing. I pray, one of my prayers is that I want to hear those words. I don't want to hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you accursed. Because there are going to be many who are going to be surprised when they hear those words. It's a sobering thought. Anybody else? Any questions? Rob? <laughs> it's like with the auctioneer, you know, you got to be careful. So like if somebody's um, slandering somebody else and they speak to you, is that what you mean? They say words directly to you that might slander you or you handle your household. Well, I mean, it does require discernment. Um, On the one hand, love covers a multitude of sins. So there are some things that you can attribute to weakness, to ignorance, to lack of training, and you see, okay, I'm going to be patient. Because God is patient, right? When we're brand new converts. There are other things you say, no, that, that needs to be addressed. And the ninth commandment says that you can defend your own good name when need requires. So you can, you, you can and should say something at that point. Hey, that, that was sinful. Not just because it was against me, but because you're, you're sinning, you know. So it requires discernment. Yeah, I don't think there's an absolute rule every single time. There are some people who do that. They're not easy to be around because you step in at almost everything you say, right? But it's not easy. Colin? With every thought, word, and deed tainted by sin, I 
various levels of treasures in heaven to store up? Yes. There are. There are degrees of blessedness in heaven. The degrees of glory in heaven, just like there are degrees of punishment in hell. Um, you know, Paul at one point, I forget where it is, in 1 Corinthians or something, he's talking about those who, their works are like uh, straw, hay, and stubble, and they get in by the skin of their teeth. And others are building with gold, silver, and precious stones. And so there is this idea that in heaven there, is a, there are degrees of glory. Now, if you get in by the skin of your teeth, you're still going to be blissfully happy forever. So I don't know how that all works and what it's going to be like to see you way up front and me way in the back, but I'll be happy. And that's the thing. I'll be happy for you. There's no jealousy. There's no envy. It's like, yeah, Colin did a great job. Let's review his life on earth. Wow, look at this. This is great. <laughs> Jim? I'm always comforted by the fact that Jesus has said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So I think that I'm going to be really quick. <laughs> <laughs> Way up front, huh? All right, well, let's, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We're grateful that in him... We have the forgiveness of sins and acceptance in your sight. We recognize that by nature there is nothing good in us. But thank God for the Holy Spirit. We ask that you'll prepare us for worship now. What a privilege it is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.